Section 19 of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anjana. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 19. Henry Box Brown. Arrived by Adams Express. Although the name of Henry Box Brown has been echoed over the land for a number of years, and the simple facts connected with his marvelous escape from slavery in a box published widely through the medium of anti-slavery papers, nevertheless it is not unreasonable to suppose that very little is generally known in relation to this case. Briefly, the facts are these which doubtless have never before been fully published. Brown was a man of invention as well as a hero. In point of interest, however, his case is no more remarkable than many others. Indeed, neither before nor after escaping did he suffer one half what many others have experienced. He was decidedly an unhappy piece of property in the city of Richmond, Virginia. In the condition of a slave he felt that it would be impossible for him to remain. Full well did he know, however, that it was no holiday task to escape the vigilance of Virginia slave-hunters or the wrath of an enraged master for committing the unpardonable sin of attempting to escape to a land of liberty. So Brown counted well the cost before venturing upon this hazardous undertaking. Ordinary modes of travel, he concluded, might prove disastrous to his hopes. He, therefore, hit upon a new invention altogether, which was to have himself boxed up and forwarded to Philadelphia direct by express. The size of the box, and how it was to be made to fit him most comfortably, was of his own ordering. Two feet, eight inches deep, two feet wide, and three feet long were the exact dimensions of the box, lined with baize. His resources with regard to food and water consisted of the following— one bladder of water, and a few small biscuits. His mechanical implement to meet the death struggle for fresh air, all told, was one large gimlet. Satisfied that it would be far better to peril his life for freedom in this way than to remain under the galling yoke of slavery, he entered his box, which was safely nailed up and hooped with five hickory hoops, and was then addressed by his next friend, James A. Smith, a shoe-dealer, to William H. Johnson, Arch Street, Philadelphia, marked this side up with care. In this condition he was sent to Adams Express office in a dray, and thence by Overland Express to Philadelphia. It was twenty-six hours from the time he left Richmond until his arrival in the city of brotherly love. The notice, this side up, etc., did not avail with the different expressmen, who hesitated not to handle the box in the usual rough manner common to this class of men. For a while they actually had the box upside down, and had him on his head for miles. A few days before he was expected, certain intimation was conveyed to a member of the Vigilance Committee that a box might be expected by the three o'clock morning train from the south, which might contain a man. One of the most serious walks he ever took, and they had not been few, to meet and accompany the passengers, 
he took at half-past two o'clock that morning to the depot. Not once, but for more than a score of times, he fancied the slave would be dead. He anxiously looked while the freight was being unloaded from the cars to see if he could recognize a box that might contain a man. One alone had that appearance, and he confessed it really seemed as if there was the scent of death about it. But on inquiry, he soon learned that it was not the one he was looking after, and he was free to say he experienced a marked sense of relief. That same afternoon, however, he received from Richmond a telegram which read thus, Your case of goods is shipped and will arrive tomorrow morning. At this exciting juncture of affairs, Mr. McKim, who had been engineering this important undertaking, deemed it expedient to change the program slightly, in one particular, at least to ensure greater safety. Instead of having a member of the committee go again to the depot for the box, which might excite suspicion, it was decided that it would be safest to have the express bring it direct to the anti-slavery office. But all apprehension of danger did not now disappear, for there was no room to suppose that Adams' express office had any sympathy with the abolitionist or the fugitive, consequently for Mr. McKim to appear personally at the express office to give direction with reference to the coming of a box from Richmond which would be directed to Arch Street, and yet not intended for that street, but for the anti-slavery office at 107 North 5th Street, it needed, of course, no great discernment to foresee that a step of this kind was wholly impracticable, and that a more indirect and covert method would have to be adopted. In this dreadful crisis Mr. McKim, with his usual good judgment and remarkably quick strategical mind, especially in matters per pertaining to the UGRR, hit upon the following plan, namely, to go to his friend E. M. Davis, who was then extensively engaged in mercantile business, and relate the circumstances. Footnote. E. M. Davis was a member of the executive committee of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society and a long-tried abolitionist, son-in-law of James and Lucretia Mott. End footnote. Having daily intercourse with said Adams Express office, and being well acquainted with the firm and some of the drivers, Mr. Davis could, as Mr. McKim thought, talk about boxes, freight, etc., from any part of the country without risk. Mr. Davis heard Mr. McKim's plan and instantly approved of it, and was heartily at his service. Dan, an Irishman, one of Adam's express drivers, is just the fellow to go to the depot after the box, said Davis. He drinks a little too much whiskey sometimes, but he will do anything I ask him to do, promptly and obligingly. I'll trust Dan, for I believe he is the very man. The difficulty which Mr. McKim had been so anxious to overcome was thus pretty well settled. It was agreed that Dan should go after the box next morning before daylight and bring it to the anti-slavery office direct, and to make it all the more agreeable for Dan to get up out of his warm bed and go on his errand before day. It was decided that he should have a five-dollar gold piece for himself. Thus, these preliminaries having been satisfactorily arranged, it only remained for Mr. Davis to see Dan and give him instruction accordingly, etc. Next morning, according to arrangement, 
the box was at the anti-slavery office in due time the witnesses present to behold the resurrection were j m mckim professor c d cleveland lewis thompson and the writer mr mckim was deeply interested but having been long identified with the anti-slavery cause as one of its oldest and ablest advocates in the darkest days of slavery and mobs and always found by the side of the fugitive to counsel and succour he was on this occasion perfectly composed professor cleveland however was greatly moved his zeal and earnestness in the cause of freedom especially in rendering aid to passengers knew no limit ordinarily he could not too often visit these travellers shake them too warmly by the hand or impart to them too freely of his substance to aid them on their journey but now his emotion was overpowering mr thompson of the firm of mary hugh and thompson about the only printers in the city who for many years dared to print such incendiary documents as anti-slavery papers and pamphlets one of the truest friends of the slave was composed and prepared to witness the scene all was quiet the door had been safely locked the proceedings commenced mr mckim rapped quietly on the lid of the box and called out all right instantly came the answer from within all right sir the witnesses will never forget that moment saw and hatchet quickly had the five hickory hoops cut and lit off and the marvellous resurrection of brown ensued rising up in his box he reached out his hand saying how do you do gentlemen the little assemblage hardly knew what to think or do at the moment he was about as wet as if he had come up out of the delaware very soon he remarked that before leaving richmond he had selected for his arrival him if he lived the psalm beginning with these words i waited patiently for the lord and he heard my prayer and most touchingly did he sing the psalm much to his own relief as well as to the delight of his small audience he was then christened henry box brown and soon afterwards was sent to the hospital residence of james mott and e m davis on ninth street where it is needless to say he met a most cordial reception from mrs lucretia mott and her household clothing and creature comforts were furnished in abundance and delight and joy filled all hearts in that stronghold of philanthropy as he had been so long doubled up in the box he needed to promenade considerably in the fresh air sir james mott put one of his broad brim hats on his head and tendered him the hospitalities of his yard as well as his house and while brown promenaded the yard flushed with victory great was the joy of his friends after his visit at mr mott's he spent two days with the writer and then took his departure for boston evidently feeling quite conscious of the wonderful feat he had performed and at the same time it may be safely said that those who witnessed this strange resurrection were not only elated at his success but were made to sympathize more deeply than ever before with a slave also the noble-hearted smith who boxed him up was made to rejoice over brown's victory and was thereby encouraged to render similar service to two other young bondmen who appealed to him for deliverance but unfortunately in this attempt the undertaking proved a failure two boxes containing the young men alluded to above 
after having been duly expressed in some distance on the road, were, through the agency of the telegraph, betrayed, and the heroic young fugitives were captured in their boxes and dragged back to hopeless bondage. Consequently, through this deplorable failure, Samuel A. Smith was arrested, imprisoned, and was called upon to suffer severely, as may be seen from the subjoined correspondence, taken from the New York Tribune soon after his release from the penitentiary. THE DELIVERER OF BOX BROWN MEETING OF THE COLORED CITIZENS OF PHILADELPHIA CORRESPONDENCE OF THE NEW YORK TRIBUNE PHILADELPHIA, SATURDAY, JULY fifth, 1856 Samuel A. Smith, who boxed up Henry Box Brown in Richmond, Virginia, and forwarded him by Overland Express to Philadelphia, and who was arrested and convicted eight years ago for boxing up two other slaves also directed to Philadelphia, having served out his imprisonment in the penitentiary, was released on the 18th Ultimo, and arrived in the city on the 21st. Though he lost all his property, though he was refused witnesses on his trial, no officer could be found who would serve a summons on a witness. Though for five long months in hot weather, he was kept heavily chained in a cell four by eight feet in dimensions. Though he received five dreadful stabs aimed at his heart by a bribed assassin, nevertheless he still rejoices in the motives which prompted him to undo the heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free. Having resided nearly all his life in the South, where he had traveled and seen much of the peculiar institution, and had witnessed the most horrid enormities inflicted upon the slave, whose cries were ever ringing in his ears, and for whom he had the warmest sympathy. Mr. Smith could not refrain from believing that the black man, as well as the white, had God-given rights. Consequently, he was not accustomed to shed tears when a poor creature escaped from his kind master, nor was he willing to turn a deaf ear to his appeals and groans when he knew he was thirsting for freedom. From 1828 up to the day he was incarcerated, many had sought his aid and counsel, nor had they sought in vain. In various places he operated with success. In Richmond, however, it seemed expedient to invent a new plan for certain emergencies. Hence the box and express plan was devised, at the instance of a few heroic slaves who had manifested their willingness to die in a box, on the road to liberty, rather than continue longer under the yoke. But these heroes fell into the power of their enemies. Mr. Smith had not been long in the penitentiary, before he had fully gained the esteem and confidence of the superintendent and other officers. Finding him to be humane and generous-hearted, showing kindness toward all, especially in buying bread, etc., for the starving prisoners, and by a timely note of warning which had saved the life of one of the keepers, for whose destruction a bold plot had been arranged, the officers felt disposed to show him such favors as the law would allow. But their good intentions were soon frustrated. The Inquisition, commonly called the legislature, being in session in Richmond, hearing that the superintendent had been speaking well of Smith, and circulating a petition for his pardon, 
indignantly demanded to know if the rumour was well founded. Two weeks were spent by the Inquisition, and many witnesses were placed upon oath to solemnly testify in the matter. One of the keepers swore that his life had been saved by Smith. Colonel Morgan, the superintendent, frequently testified in writing and verbally to Smith's good deportment, acknowledging that he had circulated petitions, etc., and took the position that he sincerely believed that it would be to the interest of the institution to pardon him, calling the attention of the Inquisition at the same time to the fact that not unfrequently pardons had been granted to criminals under the sentence of death for the most cold-blooded murder to say nothing of other gross crimes. The effort for pardon was soon abandoned for the following reason given by the governor. I can't and I won't pardon him. In view of the unparalleled injustice which Mr. S. had suffered, as well as on account of the aid he had rendered to the slaves, on his arrival in the city the colored citizens of Philadelphia felt that he was entitled to sympathy and aid, and straightway invited him to remain a few days until arrangements could be made for a mass meeting to receive him. Accordingly, on last Monday evening, a mass meeting convened in the Israel Church, and the Reverend William T. Cato was called to the chair, and William Still was appointed secretary. The chairman briefly stated the object of the meeting. Having lived in the South, he claimed to know something of the workings of the oppressive system of slavery generally, and declared that, notwithstanding the many exposures of the evil which came under his own observation, the most vivid descriptions fell far short of the realities his own eyes had witnessed. He then introduced Mr. Smith, who arose and in a plain manner briefly told his story, assuring the audience that he had always hated slavery, and had taken great pleasure in helping many out of it, and though he had suffered much physically and pecuniarily for the cause's sake, yet he murmured not, but rejoiced in what he had done. After taking his seat, addresses were made by the Rev. S. Smith, Messrs. Kennard, Brunner, Bradway, and others. The following preamble and resolutions were adopted. Whereas, we, the colored citizens of Philadelphia, have among us Samuel A. Smith, who was incarcerated over seven years in the Richmond Penitentiary, for doing an act that was honorable to his feelings and his sense of justice and humanity, therefore, resolved that we welcome him to this city as a martyr to the cause of freedom, resolved that we heartily tender him our gratitude for the good he has done to our suffering race, resolved that we sympathize with him in his losses and sufferings in the cause of the poor, downtrodden slave. W.S. During his stay in Philadelphia, on this occasion he stopped for about a fortnight with the writer and it was most gratifying to learn from him that he was no new worker on the UGRR, but that he had long hated slavery thoroughly, and although surrounded with perils on every side, he had not failed to help a poor slave whenever the opportunity was presented. Pecuniary aid, to some extent, was rendered him in the city 
for which he was grateful, and after being united in marriage by William H. Furness, D.D., to a lady who had remained faithful to him through all his sore trials and sufferings, he took his departure for western New York with a good conscience and an unshaken faith in the belief that in aiding his fellow man to freedom he had but simply obeyed the word of him who taught man to do unto others as he would be done by. End of section 19